great to be with you. This is a Jim Wiegand-sized stand. Uh, I am much taller than Jim, and that has become evidently clear to me when I got to this portion. It is great to be with you. Thanks, Brett, for uh, uh, introducing me. Uh, Jim and Dina are two of my favorite, favorite people. Uh, Jim has become one of my closest friends. I talk with him multiple times a week. How many know you are blessed to have them as pastors and leaders in your church? And so many other of your staff are amazing. My wife is here, uh, Jamie, and my youngest daughter, Karis, is here. Uh, my oldest daughter betrayed us, lied to me, and went away to college in Pennsylvania. Um, and so I'm frustrated by that. Uh, I want to welcome all the campuses that are, are watching and specifically want to celebrate your new campus in Celine. Um, what an amazing journey that has been. And to all my friends at Celine, we love you. I'm so thankful for you. I've loved living this journey and getting to this point. And Pastor Ian is going to do a great job. And we're so thankful to you. Uh, people ask me, what does a superintendent do? A lot of things that you wouldn't care about and you wouldn't want to know. Uh, but I will tell you my favorite thing is being with churches and being with amazing churches like yours. You may not know this, but the Freedom Center is known around our state and really even around our country as a premier awesome church that's making an impact in the community. Uh, we're so thankful for you and uh, honored to be a part of what God is doing. Today I want to uh, share with you um, a message, and uh, we want to do something great in the kingdom, don't we? Um, I, I can tell you this as superintendent, one of the things that grieves me the most is uh, when you're in settings with other believers and they think that church is the goal. Uh, a lot of our churches do church instead of be the church. And uh, it is a concern that I share and that I carry around our state is that we've got to be better at being sensitive to the Holy Spirit than we are at just coming to church and checking off the boxes. There's a formula that exists in the kingdom of God. It's not a, a legitimate formula, but it's something that subtly goes through our minds. And it says this, if I show up to church and I serve and I tithe, it should equal an easy life. How many know all the disciples died and Jesus did too? How many know? Nowhere in the Bible does it promise an easy life, but it promises an amazing life rooted in the character and the depth of who God is. And today I want to kind of jump in. How many have ever heard the term, the bottom line? That, you know, the bottom line is this. You ever hear that term? Or maybe it's said in a different way. You know, when you get down to the matter of it, or this is just what it is, or how about this? Let's just get right to the issue. Anyone ever hear that? Anyone ever have a mom? Uh, yeah, my mom, she, uh, she, <laughs> she was a great lady. She was a truth teller. Uh, she passed away about, about 16 months ago. And I remember when she was on her uh, getting near death, I said to her, I said, mom, I'm really going to miss you. How many mama's boys in the house? Uh, I called my mom, like eight of you. Uh, the rest of you are sinners and evil people. How many know the, uh, mama's boys are good people? And uh, I said to my mom, I said, mom, you know, I'm going to really miss you. And she said, I know, honey, we have a great relationship. And then she said this to me, but I want you to know the minute I die, I'm not going to miss you. I'm going to go to heaven. I'm not going to think about you ever again. So just know, I know you'll be sad, but I'm looking forward to being with Jesus. He's a little better than you. How many know that's a truth teller? 
Uh, let's get right to the issue was kind of one of those things my mom would say. Uh, and too often we don't get right to the issue, the root of the discussion. People say that phrase because they, they want to get right to it. They want to resolve what it is that the main point is. Today, I want to talk to us about the issue of covenant with Christ. It's going to be a little more theological probably than I normally preach, but it was something God put on my heart, and I have not preached this to any other churches, so this is uh, new for you today. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 67 in a minute, uh, but first, I want to talk about the covenant of Christ and, and other parts to that, Old Testament, New Testament, and bring it to a point. Are you with me? Okay. So I just finished attending a world missions conference. Uh, my wife and I just got back Friday night. And, and I want you to know I'm astonished by what our missionaries go through to share the gospel. I want you to know, like never before or maybe in increasing measure, we are finding that our missionaries around the world, really their lives are at risk. Uh, one of the people from our church who went off to the mission field, who was instrumental in my wife's faith journey, was martyred jogging on the streets of Libya a number of years ago when uh, they found out he was a missionary and shot him as he jogged. I am watching missionaries around the world decide that their life is willing to be given to the cause of Christ. Yet here in America, what I find is we're better at giving to missions than we are living our own missional journey. Yeah. Uh, can I tell you, you should give to missions. How many are thankful for kingdom builders and all the things that you guys do? What a blessing. You should give. You should give generously. You should give lavishly. And you should give of yourself to the message and the purpose of Christ. Now, I know I'm in a church that's a soul-winning, reaching-out, community-driven church, but I also want you to know events and ideas that churches put in your path are part of the way God reaches the world, but nothing should negate your personal call as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter all the other things we do. You are to be a witness for him. And obviously, Jesus made that expectation when he said we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptize those, do those kind of things. It's part of what Jesus and God expects of us. But oftentimes, in the Christian world, we find ourselves living sort of a, a segmented life. We approach things from this uh, standpoint, sort of like the stewardess or steward on, on a plane. How many know the whole spiel where they stand there awkwardly buckling seatbelts and you think, wow, you get paid how much to do that? We hear the drill and we decide, yes, I, I know that there's a process to this. I know what we're supposed to do, but we don't really listen and I can tell you why. It's because we've all heard it before and we think we'll figure it out when we need it kind of how the world is approaching the message of the gospel. It's this idea, it's this concept that says this, people in the world, we, we as Christians view people who don't know Christ as people who've probably already heard it or will get to that right at the time of their death. We see people in the kingdom in, of God not sharing the message of hope in the manner and the purpose of intentionality before crisis comes. Can I encourage you? Crisis is an opportunity where God can do something great. But wait, wouldn't it be better if we shared the message of hope prior to a crisis occurring so they have Jesus before the mess, before the struggle? 
And we tend not to share because we know it's just a job that I'm working at. It's just what it is I'm supposed to do. I don't want to get too deep into things with people. I don't want to offend people. I mean, after all, the he gets us commercial is causing controversy everywhere. Come on, Christians. So the question becomes, how do we as believers understand the purposeful drivenness of God to be within our lives that we view ourselves on point everywhere we go. My wife and I were Christians. We were pastoring a church. How many are grateful I was a Christian and pastoring? <laughs> and, uh, and we were doing a, a good job. Our church was growing. Our church was healthy. It was vibrant. It was alive. It reminds me a lot of the Freedom Center. And our name was Freedom Christian, so we had that in common. And uh, we moved into a new neighborhood where we built a house and it was like a frat village. Uh, everyone in the village was very young and it was a party central. I mean, they would have parties like you would only see in movies. And, and so our daughters were young at that time, probably around, I don't know, eight and five, something like that, yeah. And uh, we decided that when the parties were happening on the weekends, we would take our kids out to eat, spend the day so we could kind of minimize their exposure to certain things. We came home and my oldest daughter at the time, who was nine, is staring out the window. The party had not ended. And she said, Dad, how come we're not invited to the party? And I said, well, honey, we were invited to the party. We just don't participate in all the things that's happening at this party. And she said to me, well, Dad, how will they ever know Jesus if they don't even know us? So I grounded her and sent her to bed. Um, just kidding, just kidding. And it gripped us. And I remember being, in Christian, being a Christian for a long time, being in ministry for a long time, leading a church that was making a difference. I realized that I had abdicated my personal uh, responsibility as a believer to be a witness wherever I go. So we started telling our church, hey, we're hanging out with our neighbors. It was amazing. Our neighbors uh, were very much partiers, as I said. So I would bring my Diet Pepsi to the parties and we would hang out. And uh, what happened was uh, the people on the, in the neighborhood, the guys I would hang out with for football games or fantasy football drafts, um, I didn't realize what was happening. But uh, I would come to these parties and eventually they had a case of Diet Pepsi for me. And uh, I would come to that and new people would move in the neighborhood and they'd say, hey, bro, you want a Bud Light? And the other guys would go, shh, he drinks Diet Pop. And the guys would look at me and they'd go, good for you. And I realized they thought I was a recovering alcoholic. It was amazing. It was amazing. My wife says, are you gonna tell them? I said, no, I'm not gonna tell them. Let them believe whatever they wanna believe. But God started to get a hold of it because I wasn't living up to my part of the covenant relationship that God expected. See, there's a partnership we have in Christ. Let me give you a definition of covenant. This is the biblical definition. It would be an agreement between God and his people, which God makes certain promises and requires certain behaviors in return. Maybe give you a better understanding. This is uh, just my uh, phraseology of it. An agreement between two groups that involves promise on the part of each other to do their part. It's a covenant relationship. The concept of covenant relationship with God and his people is one of the most important theological truths ever found in scripture. A covenant in the biblical sense implies much more than a contract or a simple agreement. 
A contract has an end date. How many know that? You have an end date to your mortgage. How many say, even so, come quickly, Lord, and finish that thing? <laughs> there's a, there's a, a contract agreement when you purchase a car. But a covenant is very different. It is a permanent arrangement. There's no expiration on it. It's not that you reach a certain level of Christian and then you say, I've made it, I've done it, it's all good. A contract represents only one aspect of a person's life and a very specific narrow focus. A covenant covers the entirety of the person as a whole. It embraces all aspects of a person's dreams, of their purpose, of their destiny. It's a word in the Old Testament that's used 250 times and it means to cut. It means to cut away from something and join to something else. In fact, in the Old Testament, every ritual related to this covenant concept involved the cutting. There was uh, some sort of process that was always part of the relational repentance. We see in Genesis 31, some was done by a holy meal. Abraham had male children circumcised as a sign of a covenant with God, found in Genesis 17. In Exodus 24, we see that Moses sprinkled the blood of animals on the altar uh, of the people, so that uh, on the altar and upon the people who entered uh, into the covenant of God at Mount Sinai. God made a lot of covenant agreements with Israel. How many know the deal with Israel summed up was this? If you'll be my people, I will be your God. It was that simple. If you'll be my people, if you do what I ask, if you are a part of it, didn't mean he didn't love them. It just meant the agreement was, if you do the things I've set before you, I will be your God. And how many know, every time Israel followed the commands of God, they had miraculous, powerful victories. How many know? Every time they broke the covenant agreement, uh, God was faithful, but not faithful until punishment came and they repented. It was, it was this agreement they had. In fact, it's throughout the Bible. God made, makes the agreement with Abraham. He said he'd bless him and his descendants so they would be what? A blessing to other people. To Noah, he made the promise that he will not send another uh, flood like he would do there, but Noah had to do what? Build a boat. David and his descendants were promised that they would be royal heirs to the throne of Israel. You can see that in 2 Samuel in uh, chapter 7 and 22. But this, part of the agreement was that David had to be one who followed after God. And there were also covenants in the Bible, people to people. We won't go into those, but David and Jonathan had a covenant bond relationship between them. But here's the amazing thing about the covenant thing. God is holy. Check this out. All powerful. Come on now. All knowing. By the way, the more you amen, the shorter I preach. You guys are getting it already. All right, that's good. Uh, he is all powerful, all knowing. He is everywhere, yet... God consents to enter into a covenant relationship with humanity who was weak, sinful, and imperfect. Come on, that, that should stir something in you. That he agrees to be in covenant relationship with a humanity that is typically incapable of fulfilling the agreement. And he does so with joy. In the Old Testament, I know we're New Testament, we're getting there. All you people are like, but we're under a new covenant. We're getting there. Just give me a minute. 
In the Old Testament, people confirmed that, uh, confirmed their covenant to God through oaths, oaths, (laughs) couldn't say that right, or promises to keep the agreement. In Exodus 24, the nation of Israel promised to perform all the words the Lord had said. In 2 Kings 23, it says when, when people broke this covenant, they were called by their leaders to renew their oath. By contrast, though, even though humanity fails God often and frequently, God never breaks his promise. How many are thankful that God is dependable, faithful, and never breaks his promise? His oath to Abraham in Genesis 22 was fulfilled, and he calls it an everlasting commitment in Genesis chapter 17. The agreement, if you'll be my people, I'll be your God. And then the New Testament covenant was made. How many are grateful for that? By the way, if you don't know this language and you're new to faith, this covenant thing, here's what that means for you. If you've made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior through repentance of sin because of what Jesus did on the cross, you're in the new covenant relationship. How many are grateful for forgiveness of sin and Jesus' new covenant relationship? The concept originated with a promise to the prophet Jeremiah when, Jer- when God told him, hey, this is what's going to happen in chapter 31, verse 31. It was a prophetic uh, a shift to a new covenant that would be resonating with the hearts of man that would be fulfilled in the New Testament. The New Testament makes a clear distinction between the law and the covenants of promise. In other words, the Old Testament covenant was changed through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. How many understand that? Paul spoke of these two covenants, one originating from Mount Sinai. How many know what those are? The Ten Commandments. And the other from Jerusalem above, which is from heaven, which was the proclamation of Jesus' coming to earth. In Genesis chapter 4, we read these words. I'm taking these things figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. What Paul is saying here is this that the covenant established at Mount Sinai had become a ministry of death because doing the checkboxes wasn't enough anymore. Christians, you catching this? The checkboxes didn't do anymore and it was leading to condemnation because nobody could fulfill the law as it was prescribed in the Old Testament. But the new covenant was different. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7 and 9. Now in the ministry that brought death, uh, now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, the Ten Commandments, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory. uh, Transitory though it was. Now watch this. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, by the way, that doesn't mean you throw out the Ten Commandments. It's just you don't find salvation through them. Okay? How much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? What a powerful statement. Romans 8, 3 says, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the sinful nature, meaning humanity could never fulfill that, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful humanity to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in human 
flesh. How many say amen, amen, and amen? It's the covenant relationship. Ephesians 2 describes it like this. Now hang with me for a little longer. We're getting there. It says this, remember that at, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. He says, hey, remember that time until you and Jesus began to have a relationship that is alive and fresh and healthy and whole? God guarantees that relationship opportunity for all humanity. All of us have this opportunity. All of humanity has the opportunity to experience the salvation of Jesus Christ. It's an example of God's grace to all of us. It's an example of how God continues to reach. And by the way, God has not only chased you down, he is chasing after every person in your life who doesn't know Jesus Christ. And just because they're difficult or resistant does not mean that God is not working on their hearts through human people. God is pursuant. He's obnoxiously pursuant. How many experienced that? You turned away from God for a season and God chased you down through some miraculous ways to get your attention, to not tap you on the shoulder and remind you, I'm still God. I'm still here. So God sends Jesus to be the pathway or the mediator of this better covenant between God and man. Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Hebrews 7, 28 says this, for the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who made perfect forever. Come on, who has been made perfect forever. This promise came at a season of time where the redeeming blood of Jesus changed the rules. And we know Jesus began to talk about that. We know that's why we do communion. How many know we're covering a lot of theological ground here? Hang with me. We're almost to the main point. <laughs> you don't believe me. I, I'm not. Listen, can I just tell you, when, when pastors tell you in closing, they're not lying to you. They just want you to know that they know it's got to end at some point, okay? So I'm not sure I believe me either, but we're going to see. Jesus presented the cup as the new covenant. How many know? That's why we do communion. Luke chapter 22, verse 20, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which has poured out for you. He's saying, hey, this is, this is happening right now. In front of you, everything is changing. Hebrews 8, 6 says, but in fact, the ministry Jesus had received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. The point is that God still lives up to his part of the covenant. He always has, he always will. He has always been faithful. He is never the problem. Now, you have to get that. He is never the problem. But there's a second part to that. It's our responsibility. And this is where the problem happens. The question becomes, now hang with me. This is gonna step on some toes potentially. What level do we tend to live at as Christians? 
In a world that needs Jesus, in a world that, that needs to see and experience hope, I don't understand like grumpy Christians. If you're a grumpy person and have grumpy moments, I get that. How many know Jesus died on the cross for your sins, saved you from hell, saved you from yourself, restored your life, and you sometimes are just walking around grumpy? Does that make sense to anybody? See, the problem is we tend to live at the top line of the commitment, which is God's part, instead of living up to the bottom line of what is our part. Let me walk you through this. Top line covenant living is God's responsibility. It's what he'll do for you. It's the blessings he's promised. It's the blessings he gives. It's what he does because of who he is. The problem is, a lot of Christians in the American church, watch this, have become obsessed with the blessings of God instead of working on the work required to obtain the blessings. It's that formula. We tend to live and say, God bless us. Worship stops becoming about telling God how great he is and becomes a list of prayer requests. And you say, well, pastor, that's not us. Oh, we're all more rigid than we think. How many of you sit in the same seat in the same section every Sunday? <laughs> we went to a church and we sat in the rows. We were the speakers. And this family came around the corner, looked at us and said, that's our seat. <laughs> My wife said, should we move? I said, no, I'm gonna help this pastor out and let these people know God can work in the second row, not just in the first row. <laughs> I told the pastor afterwards, he said, good for you. They've been bugging me for years. <laughs> but we're more routine and rhythmic than we think, church. You sit in the same area. You talk to the same group of people on Sundays. You tend to have the same rhythms. You tend to hang out with the same people in your own church. And then we, we get comfortable because church becomes more of a spiritual spa that we go to on Sundays to get our muscles massaged, to feel better. And we ask questions that are terrible, like, how did you enjoy today? How many know church is not about your enjoyment? How many know if God speak it to you, sometimes you won't enjoy it? In fact, some of you are gonna get in the car and say, I do not like that guy. I get it. <laughs> My wife sometimes says that. I, I, you know, I've had sermons, not about me as a person, I mean about my sermons. I, I've, I've walked off the stage and said, boy, that was a terrible sermon. She goes, I agree. <laughs> how many know? I'm gonna be grateful for honesty. How many wish that honesty didn't always come out of her mouth? I, that's how I feel. <laughs> But it's our responsibility to live up to our part of the deal. Israel struggled with this and we still struggle with this. We get mad when something happens. We get so routine and even in worship, we know what part of the song our hands go up. Come on. We have expectations. We have goals. We, we think that church unintentionally becomes more about our comfort and our preference than it does other things. The Bible makes it clear that our view of God is, that is not to be some sort of get-rich-quick scheme. I remember a lady at my church, she said, we had a requirement that if you served in leadership, you had to be a tither because if you were gonna spend the church's money, you had to be a contributor to the church's money. So I said this, and one of my leaders came up and she said, well, I don't tithe. And I said, why not? This is her statement. I tried it and it didn't work. I said, what do you mean? She goes, I didn't, I didn't get tenfold back. I said, you've been watching way too many TV preachers. 
How many know God is not a get-rich-quick scheme? And so what happens in the kingdom of God is we have a theology that tells us who God is and we have a reality of where we live. And what happens is because there's a gap between our theology and our reality, this is the space that angst gets made. This is where we get consumed with all sorts of things that don't have eternal value. This is where we post things on social media that you would never walk into a room and scream at the top of your lungs. Come on. This is the space where we get mad at our pastors and our leaders and our church when somebody does something we don't like or they don't meet our expectations. And so what we do in the kingdom, watch this, instead of raising our reality to match our theology, the American church is lowering our theology to match our reality. And what's happening is we're becoming more anemic we're becoming less powerful, we're not as purposeful, we're not as intentional, and we devalue the role as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we all are, and we don't believe in the supernatural like we once did. How many know you have the power to change the course of someone's life through sensitivity to the Holy Spirit by sharing the message of hope wherever you go? Listen to Romans 15. It's not on your screen. It says this, that, that we will uh, see great things happen through the Spirit as we place our trust in Him, that we will have hope that will overflow. In other words, you're supposed to splash hope wherever you go. You're supposed to be someone that brings your whole self to, to the equation of the covenant commitment with God as opposed to just portions of it. We have bad theology. We make statements like this. Man, the Holy Spirit really showed up last night. How many know? I, we know what we mean. We mean that, uh, that, that it was an awesome service. But how many know saying that is bad theology because it suggests he goes on vacation? Right. And we say things almost like the Holy Spirit is a part of this part of my life, but not this part of my life. He's a part of this segment of my life, but not this segment of my life. And, and hiding sin and hiding our attitudes becomes more of the goal than pleasing him. We ask questions and think about things through the lens of our comfort. Now, let me just say this. God does want to bless you. And you know what I think one of the biggest frustrations God has is his, in, is his inability to bless us because we're not living up to the bottom line of our covenant relationship. I remember when our church was going through, I became senior pastor right before the economic downturn of 2008, like two months before. A third of our church was unemployed. Uh, it was terrible. Our, our income dropped. And on a Sunday morning, I was standing during worship and the Lord said to me, call up every family in this church that is unemployed, bring them in front of the church and, and tell them that they will all get jobs in the next two weeks. How many know you're three months into lead pastoring? You know, if you're not hearing from God, you're done. So I leaned over to my wife to look for wisdom and I said, hey, Jamie, this is what the Lord's telling me. And she says, you better be right or we're gonna get fired. I said, what do you sense God telling you? She goes, you're on your own. I looked to my associate pastor at the time. I said, Don, this is what the Lord's telling me. He literally goes, you better be right. And he left the seat. <laughs> I was waiting for the worship leader to have sensitivity of the Holy Spirit to look at me and say, I believe God has a word from you today. No, he was just doing his own thing. He was so out of tune. 
but it kept bothering me. I got up and I shared that to the church. 26 families came forward. 26 families got jobs within two weeks. And from that moment on, God began to grow the church. In fact, every year I was pastor, our finances grew. We sent 15 missionaries out of the church. 60% of our congregation became new converts. Come on, 60% of our pretty large church became new converts. We were so embedded into the community that at an at a, uh, event, they honored our church as volunteer organization of the year in the third biggest city in Michigan. And the reason for that over all the companies that gave millions is the mayor said, you gave millions, but they gave hours and their time. Boy, did that not go well when he made the statement that Freedom Christian was not just a church in the community, but it was the community's church. God did something from the day of us deciding as a congregation that we were going to live up to the, com, uh, the commitment and the covenant that God gave us. Can I tell you something, church? In the American church, we've got to stop being consumers and realize he has saved you from hell. He's already done enough. He doesn't need to do another thing to prove his value to you. But aren't we grateful that our God lavishes blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And the biggest blessings he gives you is that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and he gave you the church to dream life alongside of, to live life alongside of. Bottom line, living people who live up to the bottom line so they live in that covenant relationship are not consumed by what they get. They're consumed by what they give. They are not consumed by getting blessings. They are consumed with being a blessing. It's people like Brett Carlton, who I just found out plays keys. And I know he plays drums. And he knows everything about technology. And he has the most amazing little daughter with the most amazing personality you've ever seen. What can't that guy do? But the reality is he gives because he understands what he's received. Listen to Psalm 67 and I'll have a keyboard come on up. How many know all preachers sound better with the keyboardist in the background? It's probably gonna be Brett, actually. It is, there he is. Brett says he can't sing. Would you sing for us, please? Okay, not a chance. You know, I'll just tell you this. I'm going to go over my time, but I have to tell you a funny story. One time I was speaking at a conference for teenagers from a different denomination, and they got the whole confusing story mixed up. I, I, they thought I was a Christian comedian, musician, and I'm not a musician, and I'm not that funny. And so I thought I was speaking to their youth convention uh, students to do a sermon, and I found out while I was about to go on stage that it was a night of 10,000 laughs with Christian comedian Aaron Halavin, and the guy says, there will be no sermon. I put my Bible down, they handed me a guitar, and I stood out on stage going, ring, and they thought it was funny. <laughs> For 45 minutes, I told stupid things I've done in my life. At the end, they said, that was the funniest thing ever. I said, that was a miracle from heaven right there. <laughs> So um, I was going to try to do that to you, Brett, but I didn't. I want you to listen to Psalm 67 because this is a microcosm of everything I've just shared. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among the nations. Did you catch that? What God does, what we do. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, our responsibility. For you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. That's his responsibility. 
May the peoples praise you, God, our responsibility. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest, God, and our God blesses us. That's God's part of the equation. May God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. It's our part and it's God's part working together. Kingdom Builders is not a program. It's an opportunity to do your part of the covenant relationship to accomplish something God set out to do. And God blesses you. You know, I had a guy at my church one time, he came to me and he said, Pastor, I got this job and I hate it. It pays all my bills and I have money I can put in the bank, but I hate it. I said, brother, we've been praying for a job for you for two years. He said, yeah, I got one, but I hate it. And I said, are you just cursing the blessings of God because you're grumpy and don't want to work? How many know, not a great statement for a pastor to make if you want to keep that guy at your church. But I didn't really want to keep him at our church. He was a jerk. Anyway, I shouldn't have said that, but that's okay. I'm not looking at my wife right now because I know I could feel it. I can feel the judgment coming my way. I want you to know people get that way. You know, I had a guy after COVID call me one day and he said, Pastor, I want you to understand something. Uh, we now give in a box and I don't want to give in a box. I said, what do you mean you want to give in a box? He goes, you have us put our offering in the box. We don't pass around those bags and God intended it to be that way. I said, are you leaving the church for that? He goes, yeah. yeah I get off the phone with him. His wife calls me back and says, pastor, he's not leaving the church. He's an idiot. He said, we're not leaving the church. And by the way, he hasn't tithed in this whole year. So I said, this is June. She says, I'm, I'm frustrated. If he's going to hurt my pastor, I'm going to hurt his pocketbook. And she said, so I told him to make up all his tithe. And he's coming to the church with a check. He's an idiot. We're not going anywhere. I'm sorry he wasted your time, but the church is going to get some more money. About 10 minutes later, he calls me and says, hey, pastor. Did my wife call you? I said, yeah. He goes, she's pretty mad. I said, I know. He goes, I got a check. What do you want me to do? I said, put it in the box. <laughs> he goes, good one, good one. <laughs> See, church people, we get, we get kind of upset about dumb things. We kind of get upset about things that don't matter and we're less upset that your neighbors are going to hell. Yeah. Because you're standing in the room and it took a nine-year-old daughter to get my wife and I's attention. Let me tell you the end of that story. Um, hanging out on the back deck one day, my neighbor says, Aaron, my daughter is having uh, nightmares every night. How, how do I help her? He, he's a 40-year-old guy. And I said, pray with her. And he says, I don't know how to pray. No one's ever taught me. I teach a man how to pray. He comes running out to the mailbox, says, Aaron, Aaron, it worked. She slept through the night three nights in a row. What kind of voodoo is this? And I said, God answered your prayer. And he asked me this question. Why would God answer my prayer when I don't even know him? He said, because he loves you. You know what he said? We're going to church Sunday. They invited themselves. How many know? You live right in front of people. You share hope. You act like Jesus is alive. And people want to know why you are happy. See, when we live up to the covenant relationship, we do our part. We understand that the first parts of the Ten Commandments were about the relationship with God. But then the second parts were the relationships with humanity. 
If you listen to the, the two greatest commands, love the Lord God most so you can love others best, like you love yourself. Adam and Eve started off with bottom line living. They wanted to step into the top line to learn something, to be in charge, to get something for themselves. And look what happened. The Tower of Babel, they wanted to build a tower so they could get to heaven. And the result of that was 70 different languages were birthed because of something they designed to do to get to the top line. Let me just challenge you as I conclude. Let me just encourage you with this. God didn't call you to exist. He called you to do something great. I just simply believe this. God wants to do something greater in the days ahead. I don't think the world's gonna get better. I think it's gonna get worse. How do we know that? The Bible tells us it will. How many know we've got wars and rumors of wars and all sorts of things, and I don't know when Jesus is coming back. And by the way, anyone who tells you they know, they don't know because the Bible makes that clear. I remember the guy who wrote 88 reasons the Lord's coming back in 88. And then in 89, he wrote 89 reasons the Lord's coming back in 89. Come on, you know, let's not worry about that. But here's what we need to worry about. Are we living with purposeful intention with every person we interact with? Every time I walk into a room, a gas station, a restaurant, any place I go, I started praying this prayer. Lord, let me be someone who brings hope to people while I'm in this place. You can ask my wife and my daughter, everywhere we go, people randomly walk straight up to me. It's obnoxious. They say, my daughter said, please don't talk to anybody. I said, I, I have to. And you know what, why I realize people do is because I smile, not in a creeper way. <laughs> yeah, not that. I look happy. I talk to people. I say, how are you? I help short people. There's a lot of short people in the world. I help them get things off the top shelves of Kroger. Yeah, I heard some thank yous. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. I remember taking something off chicken bouillon cubes and an elderly lady who was really short, she said, thank you. You remind me of your, my son. I said, I'm sure he's wonderful and handsome. She laughed and she said, he was found out her son had been killed in a drunk driving accident. She hadn't been back to church since then. And in the Kroger, recommitted her life to Jesus Christ because somebody was happy and tall. Listen, don't think God can't use you in these small ways. You are not at your workplace to get a paycheck. God has collected you with like talents to be an influence. Christians should be the most on time, hardest working, best prepared people in a place. Why? Because you do it unto Jesus. When you pump gas and it's not working, don't be grumpy when you walk in when it doesn't print out your receipt. Walk in and realize it's an opportunity to interact with somebody for a moment. Tip well at restaurants. Don't, and if you don't, don't tell them you're a Christian. There's a lot of, listen to this line, there's a lot of reasons people don't come to know Christ. Don't be one of them. But Freedom Center, I know this is your heart already, but can I encourage you, live up to the bottom line part of the commitment and watch what God can do. He's done a lot, but this is not the end of the story. May God bless this church. May God bless all the campuses. May God do something beyond what you can ask or even imagine. 
And may it not be driven by your pastor, though your pastors will. May it be driven by people who say, God, you've lived up to your line. I'll be your people. You be my God. How many say amen? Amen. We're going to cut to the campuses now. And I thank you for the opportunity to share. And we'll continue on here for just a moment. So I want to conclude by doing this. I'm going to ask you to stand. I don't know how you normally conclude services. I didn't ask so I could plead ignorant if this is not how you do it. But I'm going to ask you if you would do me a favor, if you just in the quietness of this moment, as we'll dismiss in just a moment, would you close your eyes for a moment? And would you just be honest with God right now? And, and here's what I sensed coming here. Every eye closed, just kind of get private between you and God. I sense that God wanted to do a deep work specifically in areas that you're not living up to the covenant relationship that nobody knows about, but you do. It might be sexual sin. It might be emotional sin, emotional struggle. It might be suicidal thoughts. It might be things where you just doubt God. You're, you're starting a journey away from him. But I believe God wants to set some people free and remind you that if you'll be his people, he will do all sorts of crazy things to bless your life. It's not about getting. It's about giving your life to Christ and then giving your life to everyone you meet. Maybe some of you here have just stopped believing that God can use you. Maybe some of you here have just stopped believing God wants to do something fresh and new in you. Maybe you have a prodigal child that you've just given up. And God says, don't give up. I'm not done. The story's not over. But I think today God wants to do a deep work. And so I'm gonna ask you to raise your hands and I'm gonna ask you to just pray this privately inside of you as I pray for you. Lord, you see our hands. But more importantly, God, you see our hearts. You see the depth of what is going on. You know, nothing has been hidden from you. You know, you see, you understand. So Lord, right now, I pray you'd bring freedom to this place. That hidden sins will be dealt with right now. Hidden attitudes, lack of faith, lack of belief, things that are holding us back from living to the bottom line agreement of the covenant relationship we have in you. Lord, I pray you'd spark a new passion like never before. It's always been there, but God, do something new. We are your people and we ask you to have your way in our lives as we commit afresh and new to follow you, to live up to the line that you've asked us to do, to be part of the covenant. Lord, we'll be your people. Would you begin to tell them, I'll be your people. I'll be your people, God. I'll be your person. And Lord, set this church on fire in new ways for you. We ask all of this and believe all of this. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I was told you guys get done around 10.10, so I went five minutes over, so I apologize. But God bless you. Thanks for letting me come. We're praying for you. We love you. We believe in you. God bless you, and have a great day.